On the night of February 24th, 2001, a one-year-old girl named Erica wandered out of her house and into the Edmonton winter night, wearing only a t-shirt and diaper. Her mother woke around 3 a.m., confused as to why her baby hadn't yet asked to be fed, and after a frantic search, found her daughter in the snow outside, curled up in a ball and totally frozen. Her legs were stiff, her body frigid, and all signs of life appeared to be gone. Little Erica was rushed to the hospital where a team of resuscitation specialists worked to warm her body back up and restart her heart. Now, to the amazement of all, the child recovered with no apparent signs of brain damage and doctors gave her a completely clear prognosis moving forward. When God's people sin, our hearts can grow cold and hard and increasingly unresponsive. The author of Hebrews warns believers to this end. He says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If a Christian remains exposed to the harsh elements of sin for an extended period of time, signs of the life we have in Christ can all but fade from detection. We become less pliable, less useful, and less sanctifiable. Make no mistake, sin is our enemy. And while the war with sin has been won by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, and we eagerly await the inevitable and fast-approaching day when it will be finally dealt with, there are still days now we seem to lose the battle. Days we wander outside exposed, you know, forgetting to dress ourselves with the armor of God that he has provided for us. All Christians have in the past, are in the present, or will in the future put themselves in this precarious situation. And that being so, the question becomes, is there hope for the believer caught in sin? Can God resuscitate and use a once partially frozen and sinful heart for his glory? Well, today, from Genesis chapter 38, we're going to find that the answer to both of those questions is yes. See, Genesis 38, it presents Judah, Joseph's brother, descending tragically into sin, hitting rock bottom, and then amazingly ascending in usefulness again by God's grace. This chapter, it reminds us not only of the seriousness of sin, but also of the graciousness and the mercy and the sovereignty of the God we serve. We begin this text by witnessing Judah's descent into sin, and, and it's a steep fall. The chapter begins with three words, at that time, prompting us to ask the context-setting question, at what time? Chapter 37, the one before, the one we looked at together last week, in that chapter we were introduced to Joseph, son of Jacob, who is hated by his siblings because his father obviously favored him, obviously loved him the most. And fueled with jealousy, the brothers led by Judah, sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery to get rid of him, passing him off as dead to an inconsolable father. And that's the time at which chapter 38 begins. Let's begin by reading in verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Harah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. 
She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah betrayed Joseph in chapter 37. And now, in chapter 38, we see his continued descent into sin as, in the middle of his father's grief, he leaves town. He abandons his family. He lodges with foreigners, and he marries a Canaanite. That Judah took a foreign wife was an act of rebellion against God. Why? Because ever since the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God's people had been on the lookout for the fulfillment of the promise that one day a woman would give birth to a son who would kill sin's architect and break sin's curse. And later in Genesis chapter 12, God put a spotlight on a specific family, the family of Abraham, and said, my promised delivery is coming through them, so keep your eyes on this family. And ever since then, genealogical purity was a priority. In fact, to intermarry was really to water down the very line through which God said he would fill this world-blessing promise. To marry someone outside of God's chosen people group, in a way, was to spit in the face of God and declare, we don't believe your promise, or we don't need your Messiah. So it's a big deal. And that's what Judah did. Not only did he abandon his father who was in grief, a grief he played a significant role in causing, but in marrying a Canaanite woman, a woman, he was also selfishly turning his back on the promise of God. And as is often the case, we find sin begetting more sin, starting in verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah's firstborn, Ur, is so wicked that God kills him. Now, we don't know exactly what he did, just that it was deplorable in the Lord's sight. And this leaves his wife, Tamar, a childless widow. Now, in spite of his sin thus far, Judah hasn't totally turned his back on the ways of God related to the great promise. Why do I say that? Because of the command he gives to Onan, his second son, to do his duty and give his brother's widow a child. It seems odd to us, no doubt, but it was a God-given mercy at the time for three main reasons. First, because it offered social and economic protection to the woman, ensuring that they would have someone to care for them as they aged. Secondly, the child would carry on the name of the dead brother throughout the history of the family, and that was important. And third, and, and most pertinent to our current passage, it gave the widow an opportunity to participate in the lineage of the coming Messiah. For any woman in Abraham's family to not have children, and, and more specifically to not have a son, was shameful. Because they were unable to contribute to the line that would bless the whole world with this child that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. They were relegated to the sidelines, essentially. So God would protect this vulnerable demographic, childless widows, in a way later articulated by Moses clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 25. 
If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That's intense. See, this law ensured that a widow was taken care of economically, socially, and spiritually, as they could play a role in the messianic line and the growth of the nation of Israel moving forward. And this was Tamar's situation. Judah does the right thing in sending Onan to help her carry on Ur's line. But Onan proves he can give Ur a run for his wicked money and refuses Tamar that right and actively avoids her becoming pregnant. Instead, he uses her for his own selfish pleasure, perhaps wanting to avoid having to eventually share his inheritance with a potential nephew. It's wicked, and like with Ur, the Lord puts Onan to death. Now, while we can't always blame parents for how their children turn out, they are free-willed beings after all, this passage is using Judah's sons uh, as illustrative commentary on his own descent into sin, a fall that really continues with his treatment of Tamar, which comes to light in verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Let's recap. Married to an evil man, widowed, childless, and abused. Tamar is now blamed by her father-in-law for the deaths of his two sons. You know, whether Judah was ignorant of his son's evil, an absentee father, or whether he was ignoring their evil, uh, an incompetent father, he doesn't blame his boys for their own deaths. That's not what he does. Instead, it's Tamar's fault. You know, she's a black widow. I'm not giving her my third son. He'll end up dead as well, and I'll end up with no sons. So instead, Judah shirks his responsibility to her and ships Tamar off back to her father's house. And he sends her away with a false promise of eventual marriage to Shelah, his third son. This promise of Shelah to Tamar is sheer wickedness as well, because it's essentially a betrothal, an engagement that doesn't release Tamar to remarry. But we know because the narrator tells us that Judah has no intention of keeping up his end and is therefore banishing Tamar to an unending state of relational ambiguity. The descent into sin continues for Judah as we keep reading in verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Herah, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. 
For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Now we'll return to Tamar's clever plot in a moment. But for now, just notice the downward spiral of sin on which Judah has descended. This member of the chosen people of God, through whom God promised to bless the whole world, betrayed his brother, abandoned his grieving father, married a Canaanite woman, raised sons that perhaps reflected his own sinfulness, mistreated the vulnerable Tamar, and now solicited prostitution. It's a long fall. One author has said, if you're not living in awe of God, you are left with no higher agenda than to live for yourself. And that's what we find Judah doing here. With a disregard for the promise of God and his involvement therein, his selfishness really just takes over and sin runs rampant in his life. Judah has wandered out into the winter night of sin, and and while perhaps it didn't seem so cold at first, he's now almost unresponsive. But this is how sin works in our lives too, isn't it? When our selfishness eclipses God's commands, for us, sin is the result. You know, I, I know God has said this, but I really want to do that. You know, I understand God has commanded this, but he also wants me to be happy, right? You know, we can be creative in dressing up our selfishness to look like righteousness, but ultimately it's just lipstick on a pig. You know, it remains selfish sin. And when sin creeps into our lives, gets a foothold, it then seeks to pull us down away from God like an open drain in the bottom of a water-filled bathtub. It sucks us down away from him. And Judah, with himself at the center of his own world, he descends into sin. But the thing about a rapid descent is that at some point, you end up hitting rock bottom. And that's what we find in verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anayim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. See, at first, Judah tries to keep his shameful act secret, sending his friend to deliver what he had promised to who he thought was a prostitute. But his his friend can't find the woman, and and nobody around town can help. And, And so he returns and reports to Judah, who in hushed tones suggests that they simply drop the whole issue, lest... People find out and he become exposed and become a laughingstock around the town. After all, he reasons, I, I kind of did what I said. You know, I, I, I tried to bring her the goat. So let's keep it between us. 
But in spite of all of this, in spite of all of his efforts, Judah's selfish sinfulness gets exposed. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Tamar, given to marry an evil man, was used by her brother-in-law, lied to by her father-in-law, and sentenced to a perpetual holding pattern under a false promise. And now she is suddenly thrust back into Judah's consciousness. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, remember her? She's pregnant. She sinned, apparently, after three months that the pregnancy is now obvious. Now, according to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus chapter 22, punishment for such a crime was to be have the guilty party brought out and stoned to death by the city elders. But instead, here we find Judah acting as the judge and jury himself, demanding that Tamar be burned to death, a punishment that the Mosaic law would later reserve for the most egregious sins, the most egregious offenses. Judah's response to the news is compassionless. There's no trial, no deliberation, no conversation with Tamar. It's a pious, self-righteous snap judgment. Although at this point, at the bottom of Judah's descent into sin, perhaps we'd expect nothing less. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Tamar's trap having been set months ago, now snaps shut. As she's marched toward her execution, she knowingly sends ahead the three items that could only belong to Judah for him to examine and no doubt recognize. You see, the down payment that Tamar had requested from her father-in-law at the last meeting was hugely significant. His seal, his cord, and his staff were, were the ancient Near East equivalent of all of his credit cards and all of his personal ID. In fact, not only did they identify who Judah was, but they also identified to which people he belonged. They they were his tangible association with his family. Remember the ones that he had betrayed and abandoned earlier? So by voluntarily handing them over to a prostitute, Judah was essentially disassociating himself with his family, the family through whom God had promised to bless the world. He's handing over his ID to her. And while Judah is playing fast and loose with his connection to Abraham's line, in contrast, Tamar, a Canaanite, is working to propagate it. Notice the contrast here. She, a foreigner, is working to guard the future of God's people, while Judah, a member of that family, is casually throwing it away for momentary selfish pleasure. Now this is rock bottom. And to his credit, Judah sees that in verse 26. Judah recognized what she gave him, recognized those things, and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Judah's sin is exposed, and his unrighteousness is revealed to all, including himself. In a moment, he sees the error of his ways. He knew what his responsibilities had been, And he knows he has fallen short of faithfulness. He hit rock bottom. You know, sometimes that's what it takes in our lives, isn't it? 
Sin can build and build and build and can for a season remain ignorable and remain justifiable. But eventually, it can become unbearable. A story is told of a certain Haitian man who wanted to sell his house for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy it but couldn't afford the full price. And after much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the the house to the man for $1,000, half the price, but with a stipulation. The owner would sell the house, but he would keep ownership of a large nail that protruded over the front door of the home. Now, several years later, the original owner decided he wanted to buy back the house. Understandably, the new owner was unwilling to sell, and so the original owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog in the street, and hung it from the nail he still owned. Soon, the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell to the owner of the nail. The storyteller concludes, if we leave the devil with even one small nail in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it. And we add today, if he's allowed to do that, like Judah, we may soon find ourselves overwhelmed with the stench of our own sin. Now this is a sad and tragic chapter of scripture. But as the night is darkest before the dawn, so grace is brightest against the blackest sin. And even here, in a depressing pit of depravity, we find an extravagant demonstration of God's love, God's patience, and God's sovereignty. See, though this passage describes Judah as descending in sin and hitting rock bottom, as we close today, I want us to also marvel at his ascending by grace. You see, as we zoom out and consider his whole life, we see that Judah, after hitting rock bottom in Genesis chapter 38, is never the same man again. And humbled by his sin, he leads a life that that God uses in hugely significant ways. By God's grace, Judah would become an agent of blessing to his family. See, years after the scene of Genesis chapter 38, which we've considered today, Jacob's family is put in a precarious situation. In order to survive a severe famine that's coming to the land, they're being told that they must bring their youngest, Benjamin, to Egypt. It's tense, and and with Jacob still grieving Joseph's apparent death, there's great hesitation. But I want you to listen to what Judah says to his father. Yes, the father that he abandoned at the beginning of our text today. Apparently, he's returned to him. And this is what he tells him in that situation. Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. I mean, it sounds like a different guy. And later on in chapters 44 and 45, it would be Judah's heartfelt, selfless plea before Joseph that brings their long-lost brother to tears and moves him to identify himself and sparks this family reconciliation. You see, after he hits rock bottom, Judah is used by God significantly to bless his family. But it doesn't stop there. By God's grace, Judah would become an agent of blessing not only just to his family, but to his whole nation. See, at the end of the book of Genesis, Judah's father, Jacob, is dying. And in his final days, he calls all of his sons to him and prophesies over each of them, revealing what God is going to do in and through their individual families. 
Here's a sample of what God says to Judah through Jacob's prophecy. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Again, is this the same Judah as we saw today? Not only does Judah selflessly lead his family for the remainder of his life, but the tribe of Judah, his descendants, would lead the other tribes and would produce the majority of Israel's future godly leaders. You see, after he hits rock bottom, Judah is used by God significantly to bless not only his family, but his nation for generations to come. But it doesn't stop there either. See, by God's grace, Judah would become an agent of blessing not only to just his family or his nation, but to the whole world. Now, returning for a moment to Jacob's deathbed prophecy, at the end of Genesis, we find it includes this statement regarding Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. An eternal, global ruler is promised to the line of Judah. I mean, who could that be? Who do you think that is? It's the promised deliverer, the long-awaited fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15, the king of kings. Here, God is narrowing the spotlight that he once shone on Abraham's family in Genesis chapter 12, and he's pointing it at the tribe of Judah. All eyes are now on this family. It's from them the Messiah is going to come. Consider the final verses of our chapter today. When the time came for her, that's Tamar, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Tamar gives birth to Judah's twin sons, Perez and Zerah. These are children conceived in the midst of a downward spiral of sin and whose birth announcement was at rock bottom. And yet they are the first recorded grandchildren of Jacob. And listen to the genealogy recorded in Matthew chapter 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Not Joseph, Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I mean, Genesis 38 is basically included in this genealogy. And as the genealogy continues on from Judah, it boasts names like King David and King Solomon and King Josiah before it concludes with Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. As deep as Judah descended in sin and as hard as he hit rock bottom, God graciously picked him up and used him for his glorious purposes, to be an agent of blessing to his family, to his nation, and to the whole world by being the family that would eventually produce the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would defeat sin through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. And if God can work in and through a man like Judah, he can work in and through people like you and I as well. Please know, those of you who are listening, 
that you are never beyond the reach of God's redemptive and empowering grace. Never, never, never. He is the resuscitation specialist. And even if we are frozen by sin, hearts hard and unresponsive, God can bring us back, lift us up as trophies of his sovereignty and of his mercy and of his power and unleash us into the world to be conduits of his blessing to the people around us. You are never beyond the reach of God's redemptive and empowering grace. I want to leave us with three implications for our consideration today. Three commands that Genesis 38 places upon your life and on my life for us to think about this week. First, take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. It is a flesh-eating disease. It consumes and spreads and kills, and God hates it all. It is an affront to his holiness. Take sin seriously. Our culture preaches the exact opposite message. We live in a world that calls evil good, flaunts sin, celebrates sin, justifies sin, excuses sin. May it not be so for the people of God. Take sin seriously. Prayerfully and diligently search for it in your life and with an open Bible in hand as your God-given diagnostic tool, Hunt it down, dig it out, and call it what it is. Treason against the king of the universe. Ignoring sin is like ignoring a cavity. All that does is allow the rot to spread. So let's take sin seriously. Secondly, we need to deal with sin actively. Deal with sin actively. You know, once by God's grace you've seen sin in your life, don't ignore it. Don't bury it in your subconscious. Bring it to light, expose it, confess it, repent of it, share it with a trusted friend, invite input and accountability. This is how we kill what we found. Deal with sin actively and intentionally. You know, Jesus said in his earthly ministry, and he said it hyperbolically, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And he was highlighting both the seriousness of sin in that statement and the intensity with which we must address it. Deal with sin actively. And thirdly, we need to embrace grace totally. As you you take sin seriously and as you deal with sin actively, depending on God's spirit for the entire process, let's never forget to embrace grace totally. As offensive as as it is to God for a Christian to live in unrelenting and unrepentant sin, it's also offensive to not celebrate the grace he's extended to us in his son. John Newton, the famous hymn writer, once wrote, Thus, well his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon, too. Listen, if you have believed in Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, you are saved. It's great news. Your sins passed present, and future have been paid for. They've been paid for. You will live with him forever in a glorified, sin-free world. Allow that gracious, beautiful reality to drive you to joy-filled, hope-filled, grace-filled life of faithfulness. Thank him. Love him. Die to selfishness for him. Bask in his inexhaustible forgiveness and trust in his irrevocable promises. Friends, let's take sin seriously, deal with sin actively, and embrace grace totally.
Sir Edwin Landseer was one of the most famous painters of the Victorian era. One day he was visiting a family in an old mansion in Scotland, and one of the servants who was serving them spilled a pitcher of soda water, leaving a, a large stain on the wall. While the family was out for the day, Landseer remained behind, and using charcoal, he incorporated the stain on the wall into a beautiful, beautiful drawing. And when the family returned, they found a picture of a, a waterfall surrounded by trees and animals. This artist had used his skill to make something uniquely beautiful out of what had once been an unsightly mass. As we've seen today, Judah did a lot of spilling in his life. And so do I. And so do you. Sin makes unsightly messes. Yet just as he did for Judah, God can demonstrate his power and grace to create something beautiful in spite of our sin, something that glorifies himself and and blesses those around his people. He is the great resuscitator. He is the great artist. He is our great and gracious God who is worthy of all praise.